Hello, and welcome to the Cycling Industry News Podcast. It's Sean Lally again to bring you a fascinating interview with Donnie Perry, and we're looking at the retail space this week. So, Donnie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sean. Great to be here. So, essentially, we are here to talk all about bike shops and bike shops' role in the 21st century, you know, how it's been changing in the past 10, 20 years and what we can foresee for the future. And luckily for us, you're the author of a fantastic book called Leading Out Retail, which is all about the bike shop's role. And you go into an incredible amount of detail in that. And as we discussed before we started recording, there's probably about 10 hours worth of discussion here. But before we get into that, and we'll try and keep it to one hour, tell us a bit about your background, where you've worked, a um, bit about the book and what your current roles are. Absolutely. So I've spent the majority of my career in uh, or around in some way the cycling industry. Um, early days, uh, bike messenger work, wannabe pro racer, that whole vibe. Worked in a ton of bike shops, um, did a good stint with Specialized Bicycles, um, and currently uh, I am the Director of Retail Experience with Fox Racing in the U.S. Awesome. So that must be absolutely great. So what was your inspiration for the Leading Out Retail book, which came out in 2014? Yeah, thanks for reminding me. It came out almost a, almost a decade ago now. The inspiration really was I was at that time talking to a lot of retailers, talking a lot about their business. And I just saw um, a lot of cool best practices being done um, in one place, but maybe not uh, shared broadly to go to somewhere else. So I just wanted to create a resource where I essentially collected some of the best practices, I, best practices that I saw. And um, uh, here and there, add in my input and thoughts to uh, how I might implement them in a shop of my own. Cool. And because it came out in 2014, as well as getting into those topics, I want to look at what may or may not have dramatically changed in those eight years. And I think the biggest thing at the moment is straight to consumer sales. I mean, here we are, February 2022, specialized. One of the big three have just said, right, even though they're on record saying we're never going to do straight-to-consumer sales. Specialized to doing straight-to-consumer sales. Quite controversial for lots of people. Um, was this even sort of, you know, when you wrote the book, was that something that you foresaw happening? I would never encourage anyone to not buy my book, but I would put a note of caution out there that my book is a business book. And yeah. All business books are really good at talking about a moment in time. And as we're approaching 10 years on that book, there's definitely some pieces that uh, um, I couldn't foresee as well. And one of those being uh, how swiftly, I'd say largely pandemic-led, um, how swiftly a lot of brands have embraced a direct-to-consumer mentality. And it's going to be quite dramatic, isn't it? I was speaking to one of my friends uh, this week who runs a really good mountain bike shop in southern England, and he said the impact on his bottom line is going to be absolutely vast. You know, the amount of hard currency that's just going to be gone is going to be really considerable. Um, so we'll talk about that in detail a bit more later. One thing I was interested in is you were talking in the start of the book and i thought that was so well done i don't mean to put you up too much but it was so clever because you talked about the jra the just riding along and we've all 
had those. I remember working at bike shops in Oxford in England and having the dads come in with the broken jump bikes. And then it turned out later, little Johnny had jumped off the, the bridge over the canal and things like that. And you gave everyone a laugh and then said, hey, what if this was your business? And you were just riding along and it fell from under you. And we have seen lots and lots of bike businesses go under, even during the boom. So you gave a list of literally year on year of declining numbers in the United States, which is probably mirrored in many, many other countries as well. Has that decline continued or has there been an upsurge? I was pretty, um, uh, I'm going to use the word cocky in how I wrote that list out and I was like specific down to the number. Um, I know there has been a decline. I don't know if it's been as severe or even more severe than what I, what I projected in 2014. Um, but the idea of a lot of businesses out there, especially in this industry, just riding along was something I saw was rampant. Um, a lot of people get into our uh, industry, not necessarily because they're looking to become extremely wealthy. It's because they have a passion for the sport and in some way they want to participate in that sport. And uh, maybe in that effort, they didn't come in uh, with as much business background or business acumen as they could have. And I wanted to kind of set the stage with that JRA moment that, hey, if this business is just riding alone, if it falls out, you could be one of those at risk. And it's important to um, put your business hat on when when uh, showing up each day and unlocking the door. Yeah, it's such a nice analogy. And it is interesting because when I was in New Zealand just before the pandemic, in fact, all of our family got COVID before it was cool. <laughs> On our way out there, we were in a camper van in New Zealand with COVID, it turned out later. But we saw um, our friends at Evo Cycles in New Zealand, and that's been a massive growth, a huge success story. And the reason is that it was started by a guy from business school who was a cyclist. I think he was a, an accountant and a business studies graduate who decided to open a bike shop. And that's completely different to like myself, I'm an enthusiast cyclist and set up a bike business because I love bikes and had no idea about business. And I think that is really, really common. So getting into the um, another of the things you talked about in the introduction of your your book was that you foresaw bikes are gonna get easier and easier to work on. Do you think that's sort of come to pass? Do you think it's coming to pass with the amount of tech is coming in now is considerable, isn't it? It was a it was a pretty uh, bullish prediction that I had to say that bikes would be easier to work on. Um, what I probably didn't take into account there was the constant evolution of how bikes are assembled, the constant evolution of the componentry that goes within them. So I don't. I wouldn't say now that bikes have become easier to work on, but I would say is that the skill set required to work on bikes um, has changed quite dramatically. Yeah. And if you have that skill set, some things are easy. If you do, if you do not, uh, any sometimes the most uh, the simplest repair can be um, very very challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, we see that all the time. And as you say, it's constantly changing. And, you know, you work for Fox, right? So you you know that you could have been really good suspension at 10 years ago. But if you were out the track, or even five years ago, you come back into it, there's a lot to relearn and a lot of new stuff to learn for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. 
And and just one moment of clarification here, because it's a common point of confusion. I work for Fox Racing, and uh, that's different from Fox in terms of suspension. So oh, sorry. the company I'm no, it's no big no issue. The company I'm with uh, handles pretty much everything on body. Uh, helmets, jerseys, shorts, gloves, everything for mountain biking that you could need. Yeah, yeah, cool. Okay. So another um, thing I think, again, that's sort of revolutionizing the the cycling retail world is, of course, e-bikes. And we'll talk about it a bit later in terms of the, the retail models of the automotive industry and the bike industry. But again, did you foresee e-bikes becoming so big so quickly? Nope. That's another place I'm, I'm proud to own that mistake. I didn't see it going as big as it did. Um, when it comes to how e-bikes are accepted into the market, it's really inspiring to see the number of people who come into the sport because cycling is easier with that bike. Um, what's also really interesting is the breadth of doors that that bike could be sold in. So um, now we see e-bike exclusive stores. We see e-bike um, even going into uh, dealerships that traditionally sell um, motorcycles or motocross bikes, embracing e-bike sales there as well. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And also uh, um, something we can expand on a bit later is I really wanted to look at the whole how customers use bike shops, that whole customer experience, because I think traditionally the local bike shop that we all know and, and hopefully love has been something that people used and there was a sense of loyalty. We've got all of these loyal customers. They all come to us for everything from the inner tubes to their shoes to their new bike. Whereas what we often found is when the choice got wider, the customers weren't that loyal and they, they moved straight away, you know, just because of price. So do you think we're seeing more and more of a shift for bike shops to have to focus more on the community? aspect or other aspects to retain people because they just haven't got a corner of the market anymore loyalty can be a myth we often tell ourselves that our customer base is completely loyal to us for whatever reason and it's it's something i i would strongly um bring caution to because as you stated consumers can change their point of view on things uh uh, with with without much influence behind it. And that could be uh, someone's offering a different price. There's a new sport that they're going into. There's a different type of um, uh, uh, emotional connection to a, to a business. A business is in a different location. Loyalty be, for the sake of loyalty because of some personal affiliation to the brand is often pretty rare. And what I would encourage retailers to instead do, instead of focusing on um, building the business off what is this assumed loyalty, build the business off of what is the balance between new customer acquisition and customer retention. And if that balance isn't healthy, then it's something to take clear note of because the business could be at a bigger risk than they would want it to be. Mm. It's interesting. It reminds me of someone from the corporate world who ended up investing in the bike industry. And he was saying in his previous corporate job, you know, they'd go for these huge big contracts and they'd win a contract and go, oh, it's because we're so amazing and we're great. And eventually the company decided to actually start asking, well, why did we win this contract? And um, the answer they normally got was, well, it was your turn. 
it was, it was you know, everyone was great. Everyone was offering something fantastic for a good price. That's so your turn. So often we see the market not as it really is. Yeah, and you know we could oftentimes just look look at ourselves and how we shop and. Um, are we loyal to the grocery store we go to? Are we loyal to the brand of chips that uh, that we buy? Um, are we loyal to to anything, or can we be easily influenced by a different type of messaging, a different level of convenience, or a different price? And it's important to kind of look at ourselves and judge how we consume things in the world, and then kind of apply that same mentality to the customers coming in our doors. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm probably not alone, you know, from people listening as I've worked at bike shops where people were afraid to walk in the door. You know, I remember, again, being in Oxford in particular, working at one bike shop, people would say, you work for that guy? I'm afraid to go in the shop <laughs> because of that guy. And I think we've all known bike shops like that. So when your book came out then, which um, Leading Out Retail, it's such a great name. And we'll get more into the lead out rather than salesperson later. So when Leading Up Retail came out, do you think it made an impact? Do you think people took notice of what you were saying? Um, I had written the book truthfully for an audience of one. I just wanted to um, get it out for me. And uh, I was really pleasantly surprised to see the response in the first couple of years, probably um, I don't know, more than 200, less than, less than 500 people uh, wrote me to tell me that they've implemented something in the book that they saw benefit from the book. And that was truly rewarding, um, to write something that is so specific and so niche and to see it make an impact that it did. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic to hear. It's really, really great. Um, one of the really important things that I'm sure everyone listening is well well aware of is one of the really big things in the bike trade often is staffing and you've got you've got your character in there timmy you know timmy the bike shop guy wonder if anyone from timmy who works in a bike shop has tried to sue you yet but um, <laughs> essentially you've got this sort of you know stereotype that we all recognize and essentially the bike trade has suffered from real transient staff you know over the years a lot of the good people leave they move on Often that's because of low wages. And the thing is, if you've got people who are in the bike shop because it's the dead end job and it's all they can do, but they can't move on, we've all seen that, or you've got a constant changing um, of staff, you're never going to really be able to provide a, a really good consistent service. And as much as we've talked about, you know, the wages, especially for mechanics, um, you know, the mechanic skill set, it is tremendous. It's a really high skill set. These could be constantly developed, and it really doesn't seem to be that well rewarded. How can it change? It's a, it's a really astute question because how I look at, how I look at staffing in bike shops, I, I look at it uh, as there might be two things to address. The first thing to address is the size of the business itself. Oftentimes, the owner of a small business is the ceiling of growth and development for every everybody underneath that person. So uh, wages aside, as people, we often like to develop and grow in our work. And if those developments and, the, and that growth opportunity are created in those businesses, then that could be inspiration 
in of itself, regardless of wages, to move somewhere else. Mm. Um, but when it comes back to the wages, I think it's important to kind of call out that written in the DNA of every single company is to get the most value from the people at the lowest cost. Um, it's not a bad thing. It's not uh, the fault of any um, business owner. It's just kind of how businesses naturally evolve to function. In order for that to change, um, people at every level of a business need to have kind of a quantifiable measure on their contribution. If if the point of sale uh, system or the business is not effectively tracking the revenue, the customer satisfaction, the data capture that's achieved by each employee, those employees uh, don't really have a, uh, a tool to take into a conversation for um, an adjustment to their pay rate. So, so for me, I look at it at both ways. What is the growth of de growth development opportunities for those people within the business? How much are they learning? Where are their promotions? What is their uh, long-term capability of growth? And then when it comes to what they're being paid, uh, does the employee have an opportunity to say, hey, um, bike shop owner, I have created this much value for you and therefore I believe I deserve this much in return. Mm. Yeah, it, I think you're spot on the money there, Donny. Because um, when we've in, you know done interviews for instructors at Cycle Systems, they're often head mechanics or workshop managers at bike shops, and what they'll say is, "Well, I've done everything I can now. There's there's nothing new. It's just a groundhog day. And even though it's been great working their way up to that level, they want to go on to the next level. You know, as they see it, which is is working in education in that way." One thing I was inspired, this is quite a spontaneous question, but one thing I was inspired to ask you there was I saw a photo on Twitter the other day from someone who works at Sigma Sport in the UK, which was a, a specialized local bike shop. It used to be incredibly small. It was in like a little cupboard shop and it was just road bikes when mountain bikes were everything. Um, I was in there once um, just chatting about bikes and frames as you do. <laughs> with the guys and someone came in with a mountain bike with a flat tire and he looked around at all the road bikes and said am i in the wrong shop and they went yep they didn't sell 20 26 inch inner tubes you know in the year 2000 it was just road bikes they used to close the shop to go for a ride whenever they wanted you know it was a pure lifestyle business but at some point they got investment they got really big investment with the whole cycling boom, you know, that we've seen in the Western world. And this photo on Twitter was of the Sigma Sport office. And it was like this, it like a newspaper or something, or what newspapers used to be, you know, and it was completely different. And it made me think, are you only ever going to get out of a business what you can put in? If you've got venture capital, if you've got investment behind you, can you grow it to this huge bricks and clips? We can do everything business. If you're really small, you know, if you haven't got that investment, if you were the little cupboard bike shop, what are the opportunities to grow or to change? It's a great question. And if I, if I can maybe riff off um, the story you told there, um, the opportunities for growth are, almost always in line with when you took the risk on that opportunity. So the earlier people adopted um, uh, their presence online, their ability to um, 
uh, transact online, those businesses are healthier now if they've adopted the earlier they adopted that skill set and brought it into the business. So for me, the growth potential, it's a, it's a totally moving target, but there is, if there is one hack, it's the, those who are the early adopters of different technologies and risks and doing things when it may not be immediately profitable are the ones who are setting themselves up for better long-term health. Mm-hmm. Well, that book brings me really nicely onto the next thing I wanted to look at because what we've got now in terms of online marketing and advertising a lot of it's done through social media you know we've got the whole facebook marketing facebook ads sales funnels online memberships it's a huge industry you know the amount i mean everyone's a coach these days online aren't they almost everyone i know is oh yeah i'm a coach (laughs) it's really big but it's also incredibly rapidly changing and growing all the time. What worked in Facebook ads six months ago doesn't work now. So what do you think the potential benefits and pitfalls are for a traditional bike business to get into that quite hard-nosed world? What could they gain? What could they lose? Well, the risk with large marketing conglomerates like, like a Facebook or Google especially in places like where I am in America, is that those those business models, they're not exercises in better business equality. They're not looking to treat absolutely everyone fairly to go after the marketplace in the same way. They're there to give the biggest spender the farthest reach. So smaller businesses, as they're coming into those marketing tools now, it's really late. It's very, very much pay to play. And the ROI um, uh, just isn't what it was even five years ago. A year ago. It it isn't what it was a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, I go back to um, what are the early adoption opportunities? So those businesses that have strong communication skills, they got interesting stories, they will generally um, not always, but generally be rewarded with larger audiences, lower spends, or both um, if they embrace different types of marketing tools. So, for example, uh, today, um, uh, you know, early in 2022, a business um, making a serious commitment to TikTok might see a pretty strong result. I don't know if I would feel confident saying that a year from now, though. But those businesses that jump onto it now may see something and it may uh, uh, garner a good return on their investment for that for that time. Yeah, yeah. February 22. That definitely seems to be, you know, really big for sure. But as you say, six months, 12 months, who knows? Um, So is there there other marketing methods and you think that traditionally bike shops or bike businesses, businesses haven't done that they really should or may want to think about? Or, or not? What should they not do? Well, it's it's really it's a it's a really challenging question because I think it's specific to every business and their location. I think some businesses can thrive completely on word of mouth marketing. I think some businesses, depending on uh, how their city or their community is structured, could even thrive on like um, mail flyers. So the answer isn't um, a universal answer for every business that if they dive into one tool now, that that's going to be great for them. Um, my answer is 
uh, that the tool um, is going to be specific to each person, to their storytelling style, to their marketing style, to um, the style of their consumer and how they can they uh, they engage with that media. It's it's not a one size fits all option. Retailers need to be able to adapt, pivot quickly, test lots of different things, and definitely test things in the early stages. And I was really interested in the whole Kansas Shuffle um, part of your book, because like most people, they're online. I've got a rude brain for them <laughs> in the UK. I won't repeat that here, but the, the big online discounters came into play. And of course, it completely changed life for bike shops, you know. So I was working in bike shops, you know, the era, the early internet era where people would come on in, try on the shoes, test ride the bikes, and then go and buy them online, you know. And what you were saying is that actually, while it seemed to be the price discounts that was definitely leading people, you know, um, to the online uh, retailers, Often it was about service as well. So do you want to tell us a bit about discounting and about sales and, you know, what, what people can do to essentially retain or gain customers? Yeah, so the uh, just backing up a sec, the Kansas City Shuffle idea was that uh, early Internet days, we were we were completely consumed with the idea that people went online only because the price, the price of the product was really low as an affordable piece. Um, when in actuality, uh, what was happening, there was uh, an entire infrastructure of pretty phenomenal service. So now we can go online, not only are things priced competitive there as, as we would expect in any marketplace, but we can have same day delivery. We can uh, chat with people at any hour of the day. We can shop at any moment we want to. So the service pieces were largely ignored early on. And as, uh, uh, putting our retailer hat on, living in our brick and mortar world, we were locked into this early idea that, hey, people will still come in. They'll want to talk to me. Um, they'll want to come in in the hours I'm open. Uh, and if they go online, it's only price related. And that's far from the truth. Today, my point of view on how businesses look at discounting and sales has not changed um, at really at all since since I wrote the book. And that is uh, when businesses are looking at, um, I'm going to start with price here before jumping into service, but when they're looking at price specifically, um, I put all of the trust in a business that designs an effective promotional calendar um, that effectively moves end-of-life product, it garners new customer bases, or, or it creates a positive cash flow when they need it. Um, and I put a lot of caution behind the businesses that offer discounts on a whim. Um, hey, uh, I'll throw 10% off of that for you if you if you take it today kind of vibes where it's this kind of unfair discounting across the board. To me, that creates a vicious cycle that just often ends up in price wars and deteriorating margins. And how about the servicing side of things? Because often I think bike industry, bike shops have undercharged for the quite rare skill that they have, especially now at fixing bikes. You know, we get a lot of people coming to us at Cycle Systems saying, well, I could fix a bike 30 years ago, but I, I wouldn't, I've just bought a new bike. I don't know where to start. Do you think, you know, people can really ratchet up their servicing pricing? Yeah, there's, there's a, 
there's a common mistake to focus on the high dollar items and not necessarily the high margin items. Mm -hmm. um, high margin items uh, have a frequency far greater than let's let's say like the standard of bike sale. Every bike sale has the potential to create a dozen jersey sales, um, a decade worth of services. And if you look at those jersey sales and you look at those service sales and you say, I'm going to discount that or I'm going to throw it in free with the sale of this bike, um, it really is kind of prioritizing the short term over the long term for the business. So for me, uh, I look at the industry and I look at um, the 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 massive amounts of change that have happened and what i would tell every business owner right now is take a real really close look at the value chain you control so what elements of your business do you control the price on what elements of the business do you control the uh, marketing of the naming of the supply chain of those are the elements of the business that deserve a very in-depth and strategic uh, look and, and likely uh, a very strong investment as well. Mm. Now, it's something that because we set up um, our business in 2007 and we kind of went, well, we're going to focus on selling skilled labor, not product, because we don't think we can compete with next day delivery and good prices and you know people speaking to us at any time of day or night. So that's how we've tried to focus things. But of course we haven't had to deal with a lot of inventory, but that's a really, really big thing for bike shops. And it's kind of been turned on its head in the last few years, hasn't it? Because the demand has far outstripped the supply. In fact, the supply chain has been damaged, maybe even permanently. You know, it's really been really, really hit. Um, but, you know, when I worked for bike shops, speaking to the owners, inventory was terrifying i remember the first time i worked in a bike shop and the bike shop owner opening up to me said look sean i've got all of these hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of bikes in the cellar and they're about to become last year's bikes and all they could do is discount them heavily just to try and get a bit of cash back in and then have to buy all the new bikes and it was a permanent high stress cycle i guess it's why the bike shop owners were always so angry and intimidating to customers because they were permanently worried and stressed about the basic survival of the business because they're having to sink all of this money into inventory so in your book you've got this this was new to me because i've never really had to deal with it the 80 20 rule for inventory so give us the lowdown on that and do you think it's going to become less of a concern for bike shops because you've got direct to customer and all of these uh, new ways of working happening. So the Pareto, um, the Pareto rule or the Pareto principle that I bring up in the book is the idea that 80% uh, of your revenue comes from 20% of the things you sell. The percentages may or may not be exact, 730, 90, 10, whatever it might be. Um, but the idea that the majority of dollars that are coming into a business come from a minority of the things that they offer. And for retailers, as they're looking at their inventory, um, they're balancing that against what a consumer expectation is. The consumer expectation now is one-stop shopping. If I'm going to make the trip to your store, there is this uh, valid or not ex expectation that all my problems can be solved there. Mm. Um, 
on top of that, there's the expectation of same-day delivery. On top of that, there's the expectation of low price. All of these have really kind of pinched the dealer into an, un- an uncomfortable place. The, the solution here varies because if your, if your business model is, I'm here to sell every type of bike to every type of person. I'm here to repair every type of bike, no matter the brand or what year it was sold, you're going to be um, a high inventory business. Mm. You just have to have a lot there or you're going to end up paying a premium for a lot of next day shipping to get those those pieces in to take care of that consumer expectation. On the other side, you have the business owners who say, uh, like the business you referenced earlier, hey, we are only selling this type of bike um, or we're only selling this brand of bike, their inventory requirements are not the same. All of that said, I always encourage retailers to look at their end of year and their blended margin, never their expected margin. So at the end of the year, it's uh, um, just a truth of retail. There's always going to be an overstock that overstock is always going to have to be sold at a lower price to make room and cash for more of that. And that as you plan out your year, you should be planning out your year based on the blended margin, not this uh, this high point margin that you believe the bike is capable of getting when you first purchased it. Mm-hmm. And also, do you think the director customer sales that we've seen specialized in and it would be surprising if trek didn't jump to it and giant didn't jump to it as well it would be surprising if we just didn't have more and more and more of this and certainly there's lots of people including bike shop owners online who are saying look the traditional bike shop is kind of dead and there's going to be more and more of this sort of purchasing and the bike shops really adding value for service and for support and in fact there was an article in cycling industry news today all about um you know dealers actually getting in and offering a lot of servicing for the bikes they don't even sell so they're not even having to have that inventory and have that money sat there in the cellar as it were that is an example of a uh, retailer who owns their value chain Mm. if they're saying hey we're the best at service that's what we do that's where we place all of our value as a company then they're less of a victim to the whims of choices that businesses like Specialized or Trek might have to make. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, one thing I was really interested in as well is, you know, is there a big difference in terms of who owns the companies you're dealing with so in terms of your suppliers so uh, you know for the bike industry your bike shops you've got your suppliers which is going to be the bike shops or importers obviously if you've got massive um conglomerates you know which owns so much of the bike industry now uh versus family type outfits like trek the burke family do you think that makes a really big difference um to the bike shops themselves or is everything broadly the same in terms of what's on offer? I would I would caution on how that how that painting is being put together. Um, I saw this uh, tweet from Gary Fisher of Mountain Bike Fame, 
and uh, it was soon after. Um, I, I can't remember what it was after, but the tweet the tweet was great because he said to his audience as a reminder: companies like Specialized and companies like Trek are generally medium sized businesses. And um, when working with these businesses, I I don't necessarily think that um, because the Burke family at Trek or uh, the ownership and leadership of Mike Senior necessarily makes a drastic difference. I think the access to that level, to be able to talk to the CEO at Specialized, to be able to talk to the CEO um, or the leadership at Trek, that access is really good still because these are generally small and medium-sized companies. Mm. And um, I think that oftentimes retailers will say that that access doesn't exist uh, when I when I've seen it um, happen over and over again, and if they can make their opinions be heard, if they can make their their thoughts be heard, and especially if those thoughts and opinions are uh, of a hive mind, a lot of people coming in with the same opinion and thoughts, change can be influenced. Mm. And another thing that I think has become incredibly obvious to just about everyone, if it wasn't already. Uh, we've seen in so many areas of life that humans aren't like 95% logical and 5% emotion. There's a huge amount, of, you know, again, maybe 95% of human of human activity is driven by the emotions with a very small bit of logic. We've seen that again and again and again, um, especially in the last few years. So again, if you're the bike shop owner or small bike business owner, what is it you think you can do in terms of, you know, I hate to use the terms, but marketing, customer service plans, that kind of thing, staff management, how you can really positively connect with people emotionally. I suppose that's a nicer way to put it, something that I feel more um, aligned with. How can you really positive connect with people emotionally to help your business thrive? If, if you want to connect with people emotionally, give them something emotional to experience. If the business... As, as businesses lean towards being an order taker, distributor within a local market, they are moving themselves further away from the emotional purchases and they're trending towards a logic-based analysis purchase, purchases. Mm. So um, I would look at businesses that say, hey, we have uh, strong... Um, rides that we conduct weekly. We have a trail system that uh, we've helped build. We've um, got really strong, engaging, uh, fun to work with, funny to listen to employees that are that are here at this business. And the more emotional experiences at every level that a business can create, the more those emotional sales that they're going to achieve. And certainly the demographics of cyclists has definitely changed you know, in my lifetime, it certainly has. I think it's even changed a bit since the original cycling forums I used to go on, very early internet before Facebook or what have you, you've been a cycling forum. I think the type of person present in cycling social media now is quite different to, to, to what was present then. And things like social impact, you know, and positive ecological impacts, gender and race and diversity impacts. Do you think that this side of things is really important to, to bike consumers and can be woven into this um, emotional story that bike shops can tell? Yes, I think that consumers do weigh 
um, at way where their dollar is being spent and how that dollar is being used um, a lot more than they have in the past. Uh, that said, it's not necessarily the primary thing that gets people to purchase. Some people purchase for price, some people purchase for quality, some people purchase for supply chain ethics. And every business should, at really every level, should have a point of view on those things and be okay with the customers who disagree with the price you're charging, disagree with the quality you're offering, and disagree with um, your commitment to uh, supply chain or social impact uh, initiatives. Yeah. And also, obviously, the automotive industry has had to change dramatically over the last few decades and is having to completely reinvent itself as the savior of the planet. I saw a great, great quote the other day that said, electric cars aren't here to save the planet, but here to save the car industry. Um, uh, um, so I'm in, in Switzerland, in Europe, obviously, and for e-bikes here, leasing is huge. Just like going into a car dealership, um, the, you know, when you walk into a bike shop here or an e-bike shop, as many of them are now, and talk about getting hold of an e-bike, they'll start to talk about leasing immediately. And I don't know the numbers, but I think there's a huge amount of people who are leasing rather than buying. Not so much for the acoustic bikes, as I quite like the, the term, you know, even though the acoustic bikes can cost the same. But do you think in terms of like service menus for the workshop, bike leasing, do you think the bike business could really pivot and follow the automotive industry in that way? Possibly. I'm not sleeping on bike leasing, uh, especially especially with e-bikes. What is a dark spot for me to see through on the leasing piece um, is how you, remain, how you remain competitive over time. Mm. Um, so, for example, a lot of cities in the U.S. do a lot of e-mobility leasing, but that e-mobility leasing looks more like Uber than it does your local bike shop. Yeah, right. And it's, it's really a software convenience play. Um, over a uh, quality of product or um, a quality of service play. So I, I see it, uh, but I see it differently in a lot of different markets, and I'm not totally sure there is a, there's a single solution to that. But to your, to your larger question of should retailers be looking at elements like that as a potential for their business growth? Absolutely. And to my earlier message, um, asking themselves what value chain do they truly own. Uh, as more and more brands go to those direct rider options, as consumers um, uh, start to look and have higher expectations, I think those retailers need to say, hey, this is the part of the business I own. It's the part of the business I can control. And it doesn't matter the decisions of a supplier or a government or a um, uh, uh, global pandemic that changes that because I own the value chain on this part of my business. Mm. Well, that comes up to what I wanted to, to finish up with, and this could be quite an in-depth discussion just on its own. But the, the supply chain, which was already incredibly difficult and complex to manage, I remember being quite humbled seeing a talk by Stan Day when he was CEO at SRAM. And this was at um, Fisher Outdoor, as they were then, one of the big importers into the UK, and big, big on Stram and RockShox, obviously. And Stan gave us this presentation on what the supply chain is from, you know, his guys 
in the US right through to it arriving at the bike shop and us selling it to consumers. And it was staggering. All of the different elements that had to work, all of the risk being taken by different people, and actually really quite small margins being made by everyone. You know, when you, you, you take into account the £2,000 bike or the £60 mech, and everyone's just getting a little chip of that. With the pandemic and with the real crumbling of global trade there's no other way to put it is there you know in terms of raw materials in terms of transport in terms of availability versus demand um i spoke to two uh quality tool manufacturers in the last week both of them told me they can't get enough high quality steel to make hex keys you know um i speak to my friends at wheel companies here in switzerland they've got thousands of rear wheels and can't get the front wheels um so i think everyone listening to this in the bike industry is saying well hey donny this is all well and good but we can't get any rear mechs we can't get any chains uh is this something that's even going to be fixed this is um uh, it's a super interesting question. I'm not an expert in global supply. I'm not an expert in, in logistics. Um, so I may not have the most uh, in, in, uh, insightful answer here, but I can agree with you that I was surprised with how fragile the system is, that a manufacturer who produces oil struggles, that oil works in this machine that stamps out bike chains and the then bike chains all of a sudden have a shortage and then the entire industry kind of comes uh, to to uh, a slow halt. That that fragility in the supply chain was really surprising to me. And if there's anything that it taught me, it's that preparation for the unknown is something um, that should be considered more. Whether it's uh, another pandemic or a um, uh, more deadly variant of the pandemic, or whether it's something like an ecological disaster or uh, two politicians get into a spat, and that results in a global market disruption. Um, ha- having some type of plan, whether even if it's just a mental plan for a worst-case scenario, is a good exercise for every business to go into. And to approach the business today as if everything's going to work out great, everything's going to be better from here, that's wishful thinking, and that's a cognitive bias, and for me, it should be treated as such. And do you think we'll see more manufacturing coming home to the companies of origin? Like we're seeing in Italy at the moment, a massive investment by Bianchi for a new factory. And they're not the only Italian company doing this. You know, do you think we'll start seeing Cannondales and Trex being made in the US again, for example? I think that every company has explored all the possible ways to kind of ease their pain on the supply chain. Um, If it's easy to make that transition to say, we're moving from country A to country B to our home country here to do supply, um, they will do that. But oftentimes just the cost of doing that or the time that it takes to do it can be so, um, uh, so outstanding that it would be a smarter business decision for a lot of those companies just to wait the supply chain hassles out. Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, I did hear on a, a rival podcast, CEO of one company, I won't say whom, and he was kind of saying, well, we didn't have an oh crap moment. We had an oh great moment because we sold everything. And my, my jaw kind of hit the floor because it's like, aren't you aware that 
no one could get any of your stuff. You know, the whole rest of the industry is in, in dire need here. But it seems to be quite a short-sighted view. But certainly it's not a small investment. The Bianchi factory, I think, was 40 million euros investment. And Bianchi are one of those companies that's owned just by some global megacorp, isn't it? It's not a few <laughs> Italian individuals who own that. So we'll just have to wait and see, I suppose. But you're right, being able to react to, to sudden dramatic change is going to be critical right at the top, right down to the bottom, right down to the people listening to this podcast who are keen for their businesses to survive or to thrive. So have you got any parting thoughts or suggestions or even questions for anyone listening, Donny? I don't have any parting thoughts right now other than that these were, um, as you stated at the beginning, these are really interesting questions, and I think we could keep talking for hours on them, and I would welcome the talk again if you ever want to have it. Awesome. Well, for anyone that's not ready, I really recommend that you get Donnie's book, Leading Out Retail. I've been reading it in the last week and been really captivated and fascinated and entertained by it. I've got to say it's not like a a boring business book. I wouldn't have read it if it was a boring business book. It's really funny. It's got some great characters in there that we can all relate to. And it's quite an eye-opener as well. So thanks so much for joining us, joining us, Donny, from Mexico, which I believe where you are now. And we'll let you get on with the rest of your day. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye.